up Linux docs, Linux doc dash tools. So we're on LM sensors now. I do believe that there was some email that I was supposed to address before, or, or probably weeks ago now. I just don't remember which one it was. I imagine I told the person in in the message that I would that I would mention their their comment in the next episode, and I just. I believe I have forgotten. So, if there's anyone out there who I completely lied to and have not addressed your your email on the show, I do apologize. It wasn't something that I did intentionally. It is sheer lack of email organization on my part. I'm not terribly good at sort of keeping track of emails as they relate to shows because I don't really have a development or like a project folder for each episode, which, now that I'm saying it out loud, is probably the way I should manage things. I should have a directory per episode with all the resources in that folder, and then I would archive those folders, and that's how they would sort of happen. But I, I have to be honest, um, I, I consider shows a lot more ephemeral than anything else. To, to me, a show comes out, and then it's over, and then I never think about it again, ever, like an episode. Never, never comes back to my mind, and um, I know that to real-life people, such as yourself, dear listener, that's not how it happens. It comes out, and then you listen to it when you, whenever you want to. But for me, once I've recorded and posted, it's done. I'm, I'm on to the next thing. So, and I think that's one of the things that I truly, truly enjoy about podcasting is that I can do that. Because a lot of other projects that I'm involved in are a little bit longer term, and they don't, they don't get finished very quickly. It's something that hangs around. And that I do archive quite well, but for for the shows, yeah, I, I treat them a lot less um, sort of long term, which does actually remind me that there is a um, a listener out there who has offered to restore for me some uh, episodes that I'd that I've lost track of through by by one in one way or another, and uh, he happens to have an archive of it and has offered to send me copies of the the missing episodes i gotta say when i first got the email i i was sure that it was some kind of um it was bill that's that's who the listener is bill i I was sure it was some kind of scam i thought i don't know what this person is talking about missing shows uh it's probably some someone who's going to try to like sell me back some missing episodes or something weird like that. Turns out no, he's just a normal everyday actual person and he's just being really nice and he he has some of the missing episodes like I think from season I don't know 8 or 9 or something. Uh so whenever he gets around to it he is going to I don't know send me a link or something and I'll I'll have some more shows in the archive if anyone listens to the archives. I mean I know people do, but if if you dear listener listening to it right now if you're if you're thinking, "Oh, there are some missing shows in the archive." Well, Fear not, Bill has got your back and is going to make those shows reappear whenever he and I sort of coordinate um, well enough to get to get the information transferred. Uh, so don't don't hold your breath because we're I'm sure he's a busy person and I'm not really too concerned about missing episodes because as I've already already explained, uh, episodes are, are I treat them as being ephemeral for better or for worse. I'm not saying that's what how I should treat them. It's just how I do treat. Them. Uh, another um, thing I got from uh, was uh, Deep Geek. This was weeks ago now, and Deep Geek told me that he was interested in um, my talk about alternate text editors, which I'm going to admit to you I don't recall. Um, 
Oh, but no, I was talking about Jed and Joe and stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, and he said that he found one called E3. That is the letter E and then the number 3, E3. Depending on the command you invoke with it, it with, it can start up with Pico, Emacs, Vim, WordStar, or inedit key bindings. No libraries written in assembly. Okay, so that was... Deep Geek's tip about the E3 text editor, and frankly, I was intrigued, so I went and downloaded it. The website is, um, where is it? Sites.google.com slash site slash E3 editor. Who knew there was such a thing as sites.google.com anymore? I didn't know it. Uh, it's it's in German, it looks to me like, uh, but it's it's relatively simple to find the download it's it's right there on the front page it's um, a little folder release uh, or tarball release and it's um, the the version that i downloaded was e3-2.7.1 tar.gz and it was all of 185 kilobytes i downloaded it untarred it changed directory into the uh, into the resulting folder and typed in make that compiles it and provides one binary with a couple of links. So the binary is E3 and then it symlinks to these commands that DeepGeek was referencing. There's E3EM which allows you to start it with Emacs key bindings. E3VI for Vim, E3 pi for pico e3ne you know and so on i guess that would be in edit and then e3ws which i guess is wordstar um and it, it's a it's little tiny little binary i mean it is 13 kilobytes e3 is i've never seen anything quite that small i don't think that i could actually run and and it runs just fine so obviously i i launched it with the e3em for my emacs mode and it's a micro editor e3 enter file name or uh leave with return so i'll do have a test dot i don't know a doc and now i'm in the emacs mode and i can type uh let me type a title goes here and then I would put maybe author, clatu, email, and so on. Going back to the beginning of the line, control A, control K to cut the line, um, alt X to set mode. Well, there is no ASCII doc mode. I can't really find any tab completion here, so I don't really know what, what any of that's doing, but um, there doesn't seem to be a question mark for help in that mode, so I'm not sure. Control X, H does bring me to a, a little help menu and that really just shows me that the keys are X, you know, control X, control C to exit, control X, control S to save, X, F to load a file and so on. So it kind of gives me sort of the basic Emacs shortcuts that I would normally expect anyway. So what I'm trying to express is that it's not, it doesn't feel like Emacs, or it doesn't look like Emacs. This isn't going to trick anyone into thinking, oh, that's Emacs. This is just, it's using Emacs key bindings to perform text editing function. And honestly, for 13 kilobytes, that's all I need. I think I said in the previous episode about text editors that the surface user experience for a text editor is about 80% of the problem. That that's that that daily interaction, that's what you that's really what you care about half the time. And certainly for quick edits to con configuration files, that's all you care about, probably. So yeah, it's it's pretty nice, actually. It's pretty neat. I'm 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 impressed. Um, I I had fun testing it out. Am I gonna switch to it? Well, not for real life. Is it something I'm gonna keep handy on on 
on every server that I ever touch, yeah, I think it's a great thing to have. What a great little trick, uh, tip and trick. Thank you, Deep Geek. Fascinating. E3, 13 kilobytes, all of your text editing needs within reason. And now on to LM sensors. So let's do a var log packages LM sensors. This is the the next the next in line for the Slackware packages. As I try to say at the beginning of all the episodes lately, if you're not running Slackware, that's fine. You can still follow along with this because you probably have access to most of these things, or you uh, can learn from them anyway. You just learn about what's available on Linux. So um, LM Sensors provides two binaries. One is called Sensors, and one is called Sensors-Conf-Convert. Probably guess what that does. M maybe, actually. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Um, so Sensors, the command, prints sensor information from your computer. So I'm just going to type in Sensors and hit Return, and it tells me that there's a k10-temp Dash PCI dash zero zero C three. Don't know what that's talking about. Probably my graphics card, maybe. Uh, and it says the adapter is a PCI adapter. The temperature currently is twenty three point four Celsius. Um, that's roughly let's call it seventy some odd degrees. Actually, maybe less. It might be sixty degrees. Uh, and it tells me that the high is seventy degrees Celsius, and the critical is ninety degrees Celsius. So I'm well under. That's good to know, I reckon. Uh, and then it tells me that I've got an FA. M15H power PCI 00C4 adapter PCI adapter and you can so right now it's it's kind of formatted kind of nice and pretty and it has human just sort of human readable or or human familiar words if you do a dash u which i think is the long version no it's just dash u you can see the raw output which i don't think that's super useful for just reading the output yourself i mean it does kind of give you an indication of what of what um of what some of these things mean. So temp1 underscore input 25, temp1 max 70, temp1 crit 90, and so on. So you kind of get the, you, you get maybe the, well, obviously the raw output of probably the property assigned to that, to that device by the, by the manufacturer giving, you know, outputting the, the sensor data. But um, it, it might be better for parsing as well, I would imagine, because the, the non-raw output kind of has output all over the place, whereas the Raw output just gives you pretty pretty much in a straight column, single column, just the data. So if you're if you're parsing that, then that might be the better way to for for viewing or for parsing specifically. You can also force everything to go to Fahrenheit. That'd be dash dash Fahrenheit sensors space dash dash Fahrenheit or just dash F, and that shows you. Oh yeah, okay. So it's the 23 Celsius is 74 uh, Fahrenheit. That's useful, actually. That's a useful c conversion. Um, I can, I, I think now in Celsius, because that's the temperature is given to, to people in New Zealand in Celsius. Um, and but I grew up with Fahrenheit, so I, I know both, but I cannot, I don't, I don't have it in my head. The immediate equation, uh, you know, the 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 converting between the two, or not converting. I know how to convert, but just that sort of instantaneous when you hear 23. Do you think 74? No, you think 23. But this is nice to actually get it converted for me because I, I just don't have that instant conversion. Of... Now there's also a dash dash set option, which let's, uh, which in, in which you tell sensors the command to evaluate all set statements in the configuration file, and this kind of pushes us toward the 
root-only set of uh, toys that come along with LM sensors. So there's there's this dash dash set one for the configuration file, but then there's there there's some some further binaries in SBIN in user SBIN. So generally you wouldn't have access to that as a normal user. You might with sudo, but it is meant for um, for privileged users to be able to do. And the the commands are fan control, ISA dump, ISA set, PWM config, and sensors dash detect. Set statements in the configuration file, I don't know that they use exactly those commands, but there there is all kind of toward the same goal, which is rather than reading sensor data, it is setting sensor data. Now, not everything can be set that way. It, it really depends on the on the device that you're looking at or the component that you're looking at depends on what kind of inputs and outputs it accepts so you can't for instance uh, look at a look at it at the heat of some some device and then just set it to, to overheat that that's not necessarily something that you can do on the other hand you could for instance override a fan control uh, such that under certain conditions it goes full power that's a that's a default that you'll find sometimes on computers is that if it's if the computer is on and everything is aware and it is no longer receiving sensor data about what the fan speed is then it defaults to maximum fan speed because it figures it's better to just turn the fans entirely on than to overheat and melt the cpu so that's something that you will actually find in a lot of the firmware of um, of different computers and that's kind of what fan control enables you to do in fact now I don't have fan control on my system. That's not something that my system is is hooked up with. Uh, but there are there is the fan control command, and it uh, is a shell script for use with LM sensors. It reads configuration from a file, calculates fan speeds from temperatures, and sets the corresponding PWM outputs to the computed value. This is pretty pretty dangerous stuff because you're you're starting to treat your motherboard as an Arduino. <laughs> you know, you're you're just starting to talk directly to to electrical components, and I'm not comfortable doing that on my main machine. Not going to try this command right now. I apologize, but but literally, if you if you use this and you start talking straight to you know, directly to your motherboard and redirecting power, you are potentially doing bad things. You could overheat a CPU, you could overheat the fan, you could break your fan, and so on. There is the pwm config command though, I think I've mentioned that right? Uh, yep, there is pwm config, and this one is um, a sort of a wrapper around around all of this stuff uh and it it tries to figure out where the fans are and what a normal speed for those might be and so on and so the goal is to come up with a reasonable config for for what your fans should be doing or should should do in 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 cases of of increased activity and so on and again i'm not going to play around with this on my main system um, because it's not really something that I have a problem with and I'd like to not have a problem with it. That's something that I would enjoy 
um, just continuing sort of having blissful unawareness about. Um, that's not to say I've never done this. This is definitely something that I have had to mess around with at an old job of mine. There was a server line that I was working on, and uh, we would get new images, nightly builds of, of, of the OS for the server. And, you know, at some stages of that process, there it was pretty raw. And so sometimes... Um, or, or a very frequent feature was um, updated firmware for the server. And so when we would flash the new firmware onto the server, the fans would always go on 100% because, like I say, when the sensors stop sending data, the, 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 the default is to go full speed. Don't, don't, don't turn off, go full speed, because if something's amiss, the best thing for that server is to have air circulating through it, not for the fans to go off. So it was always a very loud process, the, um, the updating of firmware. That was a, a very loud time in the morning um, around the office or the lab, such as it was. So that's um, that's PWM config and fan control. There's also an ISA dump command, which examines ISA registers. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this. ISA, I know, is the instruction set architecture. That's what that stands for. This is the sort of the capabilities and functions of a CPU. Registers are, as you might expect, registry, a register. It's it's little bits of, of memory, essentially. Uh, I don't know exactly the architecture of where that memory sits. I'm, I'm not clear on that. But little bits of, of energy, uh, of memory associated with your CPU and ISA dump looks into those and dumps that information for you. This can be a dangerous process because you're not really meant to go poking around here. I mean, not, not manually, not without information. And in fact, if you try to run this command, it does warn you before continuing. It tells you straight up, running this program can cause system crashes, data loss, and worse. And then it sort of reiterates what it's about to do. So according to the ISA dump man page, the default starting point for this is... Oh, I thought I saw the default starting point. Well, you would think it would be 0x0000. So let's try that. ISA dump dash f 0x0000. And sure enough, it warns me, hey, you're about to, to go through the address range of 0x0 to 0xff. Could cause a crash or worse. Would you, do you want to do this? And then you can say yes or no. And I'm going to say no, because once more, I, I really don't want this thing to crash. Don't want to mess up my computer. Not up for that. So a couple of different options for this. There's dash F to enable flat address space mode. That's what we were just running. Dash Y to disable interactive mode. So that's automatically assume yes. So you would not want to use that unless you know what you were doing. Dash K followed by a list of bytes to send as key sequence to enter the chip configuration mode. Definitely not going to go near that. Don't know how to do it. Don't want to configure anything. I'm, I'm happy to ignore that one. Dash capital W to perform a 16-bit read. Uh, dash capital L to perform 32-bit read, and that's it. That's Those are the options. Pretty simple little application, I guess. Um, and it's just something that I'm not going to mess around with, but that I can imagine someone who understands this stuff would be completely, completely excited about, because that, that, that looks like a, a really powerful um, introspection tool. It gets more dangerous, though. If you want to do more, you can do ISA set, which is obviously different than ISA dump, and it is sort of the, it's going the other way. This is going to set register modes, 
or, or, or registers rather, ISA registers. You can do it dash F to do your flat address space, dash Y to avoid the yes or no answer uh, question, and then the dash W or, or dash L for 16 or 32 bit. And again, I'm not going to try that. Not, not even going to go near that one. I'm not even going to type in the command because I would, I would most certainly do something very, very wrong. What's less dangerous is sensors dash detect. And this again is being executed as root. And it says it's going to help determine kernel modules you need to load to use LM sensors most effectively. It's generally safe and recommended to accept the default answers unless you know what you're doing. And then it goes through what you can do, and it's very friendly. It tells you what's safe, what's not safe, and so on. So for instance, some Southbridges, CPUs, or memory controllers contain embedded sensors. Do you want to scan for them? This is totally safe. <laughs> so I'll type in yes, uh, and it does the scan pretty quickly. And it tells me that I've got a um, that I've got uh, some AMD family 15H thermal sensors, and that's the K10 temp. I've also got an AMD uh, power sensors. Oh, okay, so that power unit was for the CPU. That makes more sense. Um, and so on. Yeah, no, nothing else. That's all I have. So, for instance, I do not have Intel digital thermal sensor. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, I do not have a VIA or VIA nano thermal sensor again not surprised by that wouldn't have expected it then it goes into a little bit more exciting territory it says some super io chips which i don't even know what that is but boy does it sound neat i mean it says super right there in the name uh, contain embedded sensors we have to write to standard io ports to probe them this is usually safe like i'm going to type no to that and it goes on from there there are words like usually normally probably and so on and so I'm going to cancel out of that process. But that that would be something to do uh, if you if you're on a new system and you want to check things out. Might try that. Might not. If you don't have any reason to, maybe don't. Um, but it is interesting, and it's so cool that you can just kind of talk to your hardware so directly with a tool that just happens to come with your OS. You're not going to see that elsewhere, uh, which is fine because I'm also advising you in the same breath that I'm using to um, praise the ability to to have such a thing, I'm also advising you to kind of ignore it just in case. Okay, so let's let's look at the, the last one here. That's sensors-conf-convert, and that is a sensors configuration conversion application. So you, you can run a, a, a configuration file through this, this, this command and convert it to uh, the, the latest version of the configuration file. Not very exciting, something that you probably don't have to do. Maybe it's exciting for a distribution maintainer out there who had to who had to change you know update their configuration files or maybe to a hardware hacker who's really messing around with low level stuff like this. But for you and me, not that big of a deal. But the syntax is sensors-conf-convert and then uh, what's that less than symbol so redirecting it to to the left uh, slash etsy slash sensors.conf and then redirect output to slash etsy slash um, sensors3.conf for instance which would convert the old style version 2 configuration file to the new version 3 format that's it that's lm sensors and i think um that's that's probably time for coffee unless unless i'm mistaken nope checking my watch here time for coffee <laughs>
got coffee. I'm still drinking my Amsterdam coffee. This is uh, coffee from Ken Fallon. Really, really tasty coffee called Simon something. Simon L something. And it's mild. It's a mild, gentle coffee. It's really, really good. I think, I mean, I know, I've said I I like mild coffees. It's just kind of a pleasant, sort of a very pleasant uh, tasting. I, I like that. The harsher coffees that kind of have that sort of burn or almost, I don't know, a harsh uh, sort of flavor to it, flavor profile, I'll have it, you know, now and again. But I like those kind of smooth ones because you can just drink that all day you just drink it all day long and it just tastes so so good next up is lsof this is a great one this has um helped me quite a lot through the through the years of using linux and as far as i know i guess i'll find out in a minute as far as i know it stands for list open files yep list open files that's exactly what it stands for it does exactly what it it suggests it does it literally lists open files on the system that you're that you're on which is really actually quite handy for any number of reasons but the the time that i first encountered this was er, early on um, I was trying to unmount a disk, eject a disk from my system, and uh, it wouldn't eject, or, or it wouldn't let me, it wouldn't tell me it was okay to remove the, the drive. Couldn't figure out why. And someone or something pointed me at LSOF, and I, I did a list of open files, saw that I had a file on that volume open currently, and realized that it wouldn't let me remove the drive because there was an open file from, from that drive, and it, just, it wasn't going to let me do that to myself, which was appreciated. And uh, I, I then sort of started using LSOF when, when I needed it. Um, so it is a good sort of uh, forensic type um, or investigative type of, of application, for when your system maybe isn't behaving the way that you think it should. For instance, you're trying to unmount a volume and it just won't let you do it. So that is that is useful. It's also something that could be useful uh, as kind of an investigative tool if there's something, if you're running something and you're not sure what it what it's using, then LSOF can help you figure that out. LSOF is not as 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 kind of humble of a command as it is. Like you don't really hear or think about LSOF all that often, probably, and yet it is a very, very robust application. Lots of options. Unfortunately, all of the options are defined in short shorthand, in, in uh, short options. There's no long options, so you just have to remember, just remember random letters, pretty much. That's what you get to remember. Think of a random letter, put a minus or a plus in front of it, and see what happens. That's kind of, that's my critique of e of of lsof is that it, it doesn't it doesn't do you any favors for learning the command the documentation is pretty complete but but it is difficult at least for me to read through because so much of it is just i mean like look here's the here's the opening here's the syntax definition synopsis lsof square bracket dash question mark a b c h k l n n o p r t u v vx close square bracket square bracket dash a a dash c c plus c c plus pipe minus d d plus pipe minus d d and, and so on it just goes on and on like that just letter 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 it's um it's a pity but anyway so the um the the default behavior of losof is success I love LSOF press return and it lists all open files belonging to all active processes now 
that, as you can imagine, is a pretty long list, and it, it gives you um, a lot of output. It doesn't filter down what it's giving it, it gives you everything, which can probably be useful, and certainly you can grep through that big list, through the, the big dump of, of all these open files, but LSOF itself has options to help you um, avoid having to just do pure greps. Not that anything's wrong with a, a, a grep, really. I do that all the time as well. But some of the I would think that some of the really common uses of this would be, for instance, well, let's let's um, let's, let's open E3. Let's open specifically a file in my downloads directory. Do I've had anything. Here's a here's an HTML file. Yeah. So that's open in E3 just for demonstrations, and that's in my downloads folder. So now, if I suspect for any reason that a file is is open, is being used, that is located in my downloads folder, I could do lsof uh, plus d, as in directory, uh, actually specifically recursive directory, and then uh, tilde slash downloads, downloads. Give it a moment to find everything and filter everything out, and sure enough I've got uh, bash, man, shell, all things that are happening in the downloads folder, and then finally e3em, PID 2371. File uh, description is a TXT. And this th this column is useful, actually, file description, because so it says bash, PID 1996, user CLAT2, file description CWD, meaning that's your current working directory. That's why that, that directory is quote-unquote open, it's like occupied. Uh, and then it goes on and tells you that that is indeed home CLAT2 downloads E3-271. And then E3, uh, it, it explains which file uh, which which file is occupied in the e3 in the e3 directory so that's pretty much what i wanted i can also just do instance let's say that i know the command that i want to to list to list uh, open files of the, the the command that is uh, using files, so that's the plus plus C um, option, I believe. Uh, maybe it's the minus C. I'm not seeing the plus C. This man page is really difficult to parse. Yeah, it's minus C. So uh, lsof minus C, and then what did I say? E3, and that shows me all PIDs 2371, all of the things that E3 is currently um, occupying. And it shows that it has something open from couple of different directories actually um, be, because it does um, so yeah that's that's pretty useful that's good let's see what else do we have to do um, well of course there's just LSOF and then the path to the to the, the location or to the the mount point that you want to to in to to introspect so if I did um, slash run slash media slash clat2 slash my drive it'll show me all the files that are open from my drive and in this case there's this e3 one that I had opened earlier not 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 the one that I opened earlier there is an e3 process that is open on on my drive and then there's a bash process uh, open on my drive which I think is the terminal that I have the man page open in yeah I think so so yeah all kinds of information here um, and useful stuff because y you don't you don't always remember especially if you're one of those sort of chronic T mucks or GNU screen or even just backgrounding jobs if you do that then quite often you lose track of of either what's open or where you're where you're just where you left yourself last which I do pretty severely I do that pretty badly um, I think the, the 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 benefit of knowing Linux well enough I mean knowing a terminal well enough is that you don't have to leave 
a, a place to do something. So, for instance, right now, I don't even know what, and I keep my prompt very minimal. I do not, I know some people have, like, the current directory sort of populate their prompt. I never do that. I can't stand it. I want minimal, minimal prompt. I don't know why. I just, it's what I'm used to. That's what I prefer. So I keep it minimal, which... Again, like, this is all fine <laughs> until I wander off into some directory on some drive somewhere and then just get busy working somewhere else. Now, I feel like when you're a new user, at least when I was a new user uh, of, of, you know, new to the terminal, I remember, you know, if I wanted to cat a file or grep through a file, I would go to the place where the file was. You know, I would cd space slash home slash clatu slash documents slash um you know whatever and then i would i would cat the thing and then i would pwd to make sure where i was where i thought i was and then i would do an ls to see what was in the directory and finally i would go back to some other place you know i was always going places i would never do anything from another location i feel like once you get better at terminal stuff you just you want to cat something on a different drive or a different location, you cat slash or tilde, you know, slash whatever, whatever. And and then you've, you've, you've done it. You've catted it to your terminal and then you continue going from where you already are. So I, I do feel like I do tend to, to get lost a lot because I'll just wander off into a place and then I'll just sit there and open up an Emacs session and just forget that I've just opened up an Emacs session that I'm not going to close for the next three days on a pointlessly on a on a um a drive that i might want to take with me later but lsof helps me locate or, or identify the times that i do that which is really really useful okay let's see so that's um dash no um, plus capital d as i as i told you is uh, recursively searching through a directory for an open file to list an open file minus capital d is that a thing i don't even know if that's a thing actually i think it's um it's either minus capital d yep it is uh directs lsof's use of the device cache file the use of this option is sometimes restricted see the device cache file section sections that allow it minus d must be followed by a function letter a letter could be b for build i for i for ignore r for read and u for read and update okay that's i've never actually used that uh let's try it real quick just for kicks i have no idea what to expect We'll do a real quick minus uh, capital D on downloads, and it, oh, I didn't put a letter after it. Um, sure, let's, let's do a U. Uh, still not working. Yeah, I don't know what minus capital D does exactly, but what I was, what I was gonna actually say is the, the capital D means recursive. If you don't want it to recurse through a, through a directory, you can do, uh, either plus D or minus, uh, or I should say, uh, yeah, plus lowercase d, and that looks through um, looks through the directory, but does not recurse into subdirectories when it's looking for open files. It's a little bit weird and deceptive because this, so it it finds the process that is located in downloads, even though apparently the location is a subdirectory. So, it, for instance, bash it tells me is has an open is is occupying this space but the place where bash is 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 in a subdirectory of downloads not sure why that why that's there to be honest i i feel like that shouldn't be there but it could be it's probably i'm assuming some kind of subtlety of of definition of of what of what a file is uh so that's that's those are the d options now 
the um, minus i option, or the dash i, I should say, is the uh, interface, or I'm assuming it means interface. Uh, it, it's the network one anyway. So if you want to look at active network connections, you can do that with LSOF. You probably thought you had to do it with like Netstat or something like that. No, you can do it with LSOF. Here's what the man page has to say about it. So it selects listings of files any of whose internet address matches the address specified in i this man page it is a challenge okay so what that's theoretically saying is that i should be able to do an lsof um dash i and then provide the internet address of the connection i've made and it gives me an error it says that uh, the the address 192.168.11 in dash i the address is an unknown protocol name that's a little bit odd because the um the man page specifically said that the value of i would be the address and this is telling me that it wants a protocol name now the man page does talk about the protocol name it says you can you can issue or you can use the ip version so either four or six so mine's four because I don't have my provider actually doesn't doesn't do IPv6 yet still. Um, dash I I mean I'm on VDSL. Uh, internet in this area is not the greatest. Dash I four uh, and then I don't know. Let's do the address again. No doesn't doesn't understand. It says no such file or directory for that address. All right. Well let's try the the protocol type as well. So we'll just do UDP because I happen to know that will be a short list. So dash I four and then UDP. Uh, that doesn't work either. It says status error on UDP, no such file. All right, well, we'll cram four and UDP together, no spaces between the two. So that's LSOF space dash I space for UDP, all one string. And that works. That gives me all the IP for connections of type UDP on all addresses. So now if I try to narrow the address range well, actually, that won't work because I don't have enough to play with there. I guess we'll try TCP. That gives me a, a better list of stuff to play with. So if you keep reading in the man page, it eventually gets around to telling you that host addresses must be preceded by the at symbol, no matter what. Even if there's no user, it has to have the at symbol. And ports, a port number has to be preceded by a colon. Doesn't matter what port it is, doesn't matter gotta have the colon in front of it. So those are required parts of the host name and and port number, which are optional, but if you're going to use them, you, that's how you notate them. Now that's several paragraphs after you've been told <laughs> that these things are, are items that you can specify. In other words, I am urging you, if you delve into LSOF man page, read the whole description by each option. The options are short, but their descriptions are long and arguably not ordered in the optimal way. That is to say, I would have accompanied the requirement of the at symbol or the colon when I was telling the user that they could enter a host name or a port number or, or a host address for that matter. So in order to filter this down lsof-i, we could say for tcp at the address and that works. Or we could even just put dash i space at the address, and that narrows it down as well because it matches that address. Or part of the address is matched anyway, because actually it, the 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 name column for this for this entry contains both my originating uh, address and then a little arrow to the destination. So you get both you both get both parts of that connection. This is a really useful output though. This is really nice. 
It shows you the command, it shows you the PID, it shows you the user, it shows you the uh, protocol, it shows you the exact address. Really, really useful. It's it's really easy output to read. Definitely check that out if you if you're if you're ever unclear about what kind of connections are happening from your machine. That's it. This is this is a great way to find that information out. Um, really, really useful. I mean, do you remember the days back when when you would want sort of a, a phone home alert? You can you can get that with lsof-i and then you know whatever you 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 want to filter it by. In this case, you probably wouldn't want all that much if you didn't know what you were looking for. Um, maybe maybe you would want the name, the command that was doing it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Either way, um, there's another flag that I'm going to mention here, and that's dash r, and this one's really Really easy to use. It's it puts it on repeat dash r for repeat. So if you just want to open up LSOF and kind of monitor things, then dash r will it it'll just it'll just leave it open and you can uh, monitor connections as they occur. It's really useful. It's it's almost like top for for um, LSOF. The way to read it though is kind of in reverse of top, which makes sense if you think about it. It's kind of a list and you're tailing the list. So for instance, if I close out of my SSH session with my server, uh, well, nothing happens. If I reopen it, however, then going back to that tab, there's there it is. It says um, this SSH connection 32418 is the, P, the is the PID IPv4 protocol TCP from this to that and then established. So and that just appears at the bottom of the list because that's the most recent thing. Um, really, really useful. Very, it's just a great command, honestly. Um, it can be very confusing. The documentation, the man page, it's just, it's really, it's a, it's one of those things that it contains a lot of information, and then the information that it does contain is delivered at a at a rather leisurely pace. So you get there in the end, but it, it does take it a little while to get there. Um, so just be patient. Read the whole thing kind of understand the concept of the option before attempting. That's it. That's LSOF, a really, really useful command. You should check it out. You should use it. And next time, we're going to start out with LSSCSI, or list SCSI, as as I guess it would technically be called. You know what? Maybe we could just knock that out right now. Let's find out how much how much is in this package. One command. One command. We can do this. Okay, so LS LS SCSI, um, I, I've heard different people say it different ways, but I've always said it's SCSI. It, it lists SCSI devices or hosts and their attributes. SCSI, um, in case you don't know, was a rather popular high-speed connection, um, it was a cable, it was a cable, that kind of looked, to look at it, you might might mistake it maybe for like a parallel cable. If you don't know what that is, um, if you looked at it, you might have mistook it for a DVI cable. If you don't know what that is, um, you might, I don't know what to tell you if you don't know what that is, actually. that That's a tough one. Um, it's like a big VGA cable. If you don't know what that is, um, it's kind of like a serial cable. I don't know. It's, it's a, they're cables with pins. It's old stuff old old cable stuff so SCSI was really really old and it, it but it but for at the at the time it was it was fast that was the fast option and um that's scsi and and from what i've heard people generally call it SCSI. um and it is in fact the reason that on on linux the the drives the hard drives are 
SDA because the S stood for SCSI, believe it or not. HDA, I don't know, I don't remember what that stands for, H. HD, but I mean, I've never really seen HDA. I've seen it in documentation, old documentation, but um, modern drives are, are always, they seem to pretty much be called SD somethings, SDA, SDB, SDC, SDD, and so on. Now, not all of them, for instance, on my fancy new work laptop, and by new, I don't mean actually new, but, you know, newer than, than other devices that I own. On on, on that one, there's uh, some, uh, what was it called? The, um, like a flash drive or whatever, um, solid state drive, and it gets the designation NVMe0, and then in one and then N1P1 for a partition and so on. So you you, you see variations on, on on different different models and different technologies, but it's pretty common at the time of this writing to see SD something, and that is actually referring to SCSI because I guess when SCSI was still around and USB came came onto the scene, I, I guess they just figured they would re, they would just kind of keep going with the SCSI designation, even though it was USB. I don't know why they didn't change it to UDA or UDB or UDC and so on, but they, they just, for whatever reason, it got that S designation. So anyway, LS, LS SCSI does probably what you would imagine it would do, which is list SCSI devices. And as you can imagine, if all of your drives are designated with that SD prefix, then when you type in LS, LS SCSI, it lists all of those devices. That's pretty much what it does. It's pretty simple. Um, so in that sense, I guess it's a little bit like a um, LS block, LSBLK which we covered back in the AAA package series or whatever it was, maybe just the A, I forget what it's called. Yeah, just A, right? Um, so that's that's a pretty useful thing. You can get lots of information on these things if you do, for instance, dash dash classic. You'll, you'll get potentially more information than you could possibly want. It'll, it'll give you all kinds of information. And there are lots of different variations on the kind of output that you get. So, for instance, um, ls scuzzy dash dash device tags on at the end uh, the I guess the device designator of of that of that device of that drive rather. So I get numbers like eight colon zero, eight colon sixteen, eight colon thirty two, forty eight, sixty four, eighty, one twelve, and so on. I, I don't really know what that actually refers to because um, I mean it, it says that it's a probable SCSI device name, but I, I don't know the significance of that. So um, yeah, I don't know why you would do that, but you can get that. Uh, the classic, like I said, that that gives you all kinds of information. You can do dash dash generic for the generic device name. Let's try it. It gives me nothing new at all. I mean, it gives me dashes in the last column. I don't think that's super useful. No, I don't think that's useful. I mean, I don't know how much of this is useful and how much it is, of it is possibly not useful because they're not really SCSI devices. I don't, I don't know if that makes a difference. I'm just purely speculating. Okay, so then there's the dash dash hosts option. Hosts have to type in the command correct, uh, and that shows me the um, the the name of the the subsystem that it that this these drives are attached to. Which frankly, I'm pretty sure we got that out of the default. No, I imagined it. Okay, so um, so this tells you what subsystem it's it's attached to. In in other words, AHCI. USB dash storage. In other words, how the drive is physically connected to your 
computer, which I think is great. And I wish that was, I think that should be a part of the default output of list block or, or anything really. I mean, that's just hugely important for people to understand at least some notion of what, where their drive is. And if it's just the difference between this is internal, this is external, good, great. That's that much more information to help me zero in on a drive, especially since a lot of times when you're looking for a drive uh, manually, it's because you need to do something to that drive, like format it or erase it or, or copy a Linux distro onto it or something like that. So I think that's really, really fantastic, that particular um, option. I think is a good one. All right, let's see what else we've got. We got um, dash K to use Linux default algorithm for naming devices. Um, I don't think that's very useful to me, at least. Uh, you can certainly play around with it. Uh, list dash dash list gives all kinds of information about the drive, such as um, what it what kind of drive it is, for instance, or, or, or rather how it identifies itself, I guess. For instance, Toshiba external USB 3.0 or generic mass storage. A lot of this is just a window into the information that you could get from slash proc slash SCSI or whatever, or, or, or uh, slash dev slash, what is it, disks slash by dash ID or whatever, you know, that, that sort of sub, the subdirectories uh, within proc and within dev, you can get some of this information from there, but, but by doing it this way, you get, in theory, uh, more targeted information. But, I mean, certainly the ls scuzzy uh, dash dash list, nope, it wasn't list, uh, sorry, it was, oh, I have to find it again, um, dash dash device, I think it was, let's do that, let's try that, um, is, no, it's not that one either. There's one in here. I don't remember which one it was. Maybe K. No. Um, there's one in here. There's an option in here that gives you practically the same... Oh, it was classic. That's what it was. I just saw it in the help menu. Classic. It's basically doing a cat of proc scuzzy slash scuzzy. It gives you the exact same out. Uh, you can also find out the information like... Uh, well, again, what it's kind of connected to. So not sure if it's an internal or external do a dash dash transport and it'll show you whether it's hooked up to your SATA a SATA connection or through a USB connection and dash dash unit provides uh, the information of the the um, not the UID because I think that's very specific to the um, to uh, FS tab but the, uh, the the serial number or whatever to to the drive. I'm not really sure what this number is. It's it's like the the thing that um, you are given when you look at a device uh, and it gives you the manufacturer the product ID and the vendor ID and that that's that stuff. Whatever that's called, that's here in the dash dash unit output. You can get some uh, similar I guess related information sort of vendor specific information with dash w which gives you the wwn for the disks and that's information again that you get by slash dev slash disk slash by dash id slash wwn asterisk according to the the help the help screen um so yeah you can get you can get kind of a lot of that really nitty-gritty stuff and it's kind of priceless in a way honestly i mean if you are if if your if your system is more than just a laptop then this is essential if you're by and by laptop i mean if your system has more than one drive 
Like if your file system is spread across multiple drives, then this is absolutely essential. And even if your file system is just, or even if your computer rather has a couple of different drives, maybe not even, you know, they're separate file systems completely, this is still useful because you just get a better idea of, of which drive it is that's assigned to that very cryptic SDA, SDB, SDC. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. This tells me something, at least. It can it can give me a notion of, of, of what model that is. This is the ST1000. Okay, well, I know which one that is now because I, I remember putting it into my computer. I remember sliding that into the, the drive bay. Um, th this is a USB 3.0. Okay, well, now I know which one those are. Those are the Toshiba drive. This is uh, an A-Data USB flash drive. Okay, got it. You know, so it, it gives you a lot of real-world insight into into what really is quite cryptic dev SDA, dev SDB, and so on through J. That's literally how many drives I have connected to this system, A through J. So th this is really, really useful. L LS SCSI. Try it out get familiar with the hardware on your machine it's important especially if you're going around mucking around with 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 different drives doing potentially harmful stuff you don't want it over you don't want to write over the wrong drive so use ls scuzzy for better for clearer insight if you need it all right that's it next time since we've just done ls scuzzy we'll do lxc that's a really fun one. It's fun because it's containers. Containers are super important. I think I've probably talked a little bit about containers before. I know I've done a Hacker Public Radio episode about them. I think we talked a little bit about it with NS, you know, some of the namespace stuff, NSEnter and, and Unshare and stuff like that. LXC, that'll be next. That will be fun, I guarantee it. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
winner. I know my goals. I am intelligently aggressive. I sell from my total knowledge of merchandise using appropriate adjectives. I act with an always positive mindset. The more I sell, the more I'll have.